All right, if you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn to Romans chapter 11 as we finish up this chapter. In this sermon series, uh, we will be in Romans 11, 25 uh, through 36 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I'd love for us to walk away with. It's this. It's the mystery of God's redemptive will and workings ought lead us to worship with hope and expectation. Let me say that again. The mystery of God's redemptive will and workings ought lead us to worship with hope and expectation. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this again is Romans eleven twenty five 25 through 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, let me, let me remind us that in, in our reading of Romans 9 through 11, uh, the ultimate goal, the way in which we could know that we have understood and read it properly, is that it would cause us to be more missional. Too often, I think, we have presumed that Romans 9 through 11 is a great reason to not be missional. And that would be the exact opposite of Paul's intention. In fact, we can be missional because of God's predestining work, right? So that means it doesn't depend on us, which is good news, because I can tell you we mess up all the time with the heavy questions. How is it if God is so uh, joyful and so longing for people to be with him in heaven that hell is populated at all? Now, you can give a blunt answer. But I can tell you as a former radical anti-theist, it will be insufficient. It won't answer the question. Primarily because we don't have a knowledge problem, right? So which of you, if you had a son or daughter that you knew didn't know God, would be perfectly satisfied that they were hell-bound? Because you knew an answer that someone had given, how would you be satisfied with that? Right? Even Job gives way, and I bring up Job because he's going to feature prominently at the end of the sermon since Paul chooses to quote him extensively. Job, you remember in the early stages, was the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but thanks be to God. Well, if you keep reading, he don't keep that energy. 
he begins to really question whether or not that is true. He begins to really wrestle with whether or not that is good. And so we recognize that we don't have primarily a noetic problem. We have a heart problem. We, we have a, an issue of uh, desire that only the Spirit uh, in the power and finished work of Christ can change, can bring us into the image of God in a way that, that shows the image of Christ. And so it's very important that we recognize Paul's desire here. Notice the many times throughout Romans 9 through 11 where he breaks out in, into some show of his emotions from early on when he said, listen, I would give up my salvation if some of my own brothers and sisters would come to know Christ. Who of us has that kind of perspective? Now, don't be shamed. Even he recognizes, you don't, and praise be to God, you don't actually have to do that. But he's saying, if I could... I would. I am zealous to see them. And you notice at the beginning of 10 where he broke out again in his emotions. And we see here at the end of 11, he cannot help himself. He breaks out into effusive doxological praise of God for who he is and what he is doing. Now, if he's the one who understands predestination, election, and mission better than any of us, ought we not follow his example? And you can't just do it. It's not just mechanistic, right? We could, we could try to fake it. Okay, I can say the words. No, this is something we should long for at heart level. This is something we should cry out for to be formed in us. Because too many of us don't care about the lost as we ought or those that we see who are the enemies of God. And let me remind you, he's praying for a group of people who are trying to kill him. Remember? The Israelites thinks that Paul is the worst thing that's ever happened to the world. And he needs to be eradicated, but only because of the protection and, and, and perseverance of the Lord is message out. They hate him violently, and yet he longs for their redemption. That should do something to us. Now, uh, let me ask you this. How do you respond when you encounter a mystery of any kind? Right, like you got something that you, and so mystery is something that we don't quite understand. It doesn't quite fit within the brain templates that we presently have, that don't fit within the knowledge base that we presently have. How do most of you encounter mystery? Do you arrogantly assume, as I do and many others, ah, we can figure that out. We can, we can turn that into a mathematical equation of some kind. We can reverse engineer that, I can guarantee you. And we have on a lot of things, right? We figured a lot of stuff out that we kind of superstitiously thought was something spiritual that turned out to be something natural, right? Uh, there's a book called God, Dr. Buzzard, and the Bolito Man, which is about Sapelo Island. And on Sapelo Island, there's a phenomena where in the evenings, there's this glowing thing that happens in the swamp. Well, for decades and maybe even centuries, they thought it was haints. And those haints would chase you, right? What well, turns out, uh, the University of Georgia uh, started doing a lot of maritime stuff there at Sapelo Island. And do you know what it is? It's actually a glowing mushroom that occurs in the swamp, a phosphorescent mushroom, as it were. And it looks like a glowing jack-o'-lantern. It would be quite terrifying if you had no earthly idea what it was. And because of its shining on the water and the way the water would move, it looked like it was coming toward you, right? 
If it was all you knew was, and you didn't have the knowledge, yeah, I'm sure all of us, I don't know of any of you that would stand there and go, I think I can figure this out. But it turns out it was just a phosphorescent mushroom, right? So there's, there's ways in which we can, yes, figure some things out. But, but we need to be careful with that arrogance because we've also thought we had figured some things out that turned out to be insanely wrong, right? There's many different kind of discoveries that it ends up, turns out, it just isn't true. Why do we have a website called Snopes? For what reason? Because of the mysteries that we think we're figuring out, the things we think we're figuring out need to be tested, and many times it proves wrong. It's just not true. But yet we perpetuate these things. And so it's, it's important that we recognize that mystery ought first cause us in humility to turn to the one who knows above all. It is an arrogant thing to, to say, if I don't understand it, then it can't be true, right? Because if that's the case, many of you should probably stop breathing because you don't understand how that process works, right? And so, so we want to be careful that we don't treat mystery as something to be deconstructed, as something that we need to master Instead of first, especially when it comes to the Lord our God, I think this is unique. I'm not talking about the natural world anymore. But when it comes to the Lord our God, if he declares it as mystery, he is telling you, you can't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a very helpful verse. It says, look, that which is mystery, you must leave as mystery. But that which you know to do, do. We're going to see that in this passage. There's a mystery if you are thinking that I'm going to give you a mathematical equation that will make you satisfied with all of us being consigned to disobedience and there being different phases in the history of the life of God's people where disobedience reigns, right? The hardening is partial and then it's let loose and then it goes back and forth. If you think I can explain that in a way that's going to make you happy, I'm going to disappoint you. But what I do know and see clearly is that reality, that the, the fact that the Lord works in that way and in those things, it ought cause us to give him great praise because he cares about the disobedient at all. And he goes to such lengths to redeem them in the way that is going to be most fruitful. I don't understand it, but I'm glad it's true. So as we turn back to this text, let's notice how he gives a warning first. Lest you be wise in your own... Think about some of the heavy things, the difficult things that he's already said. Talking about predestination, vessels of wrath, vessels for righteousness. Talking about breaking off Gentiles and grafting in and leaving out. All these different things. He's saying, listen, you are dealing with something. You are before something that requires you to pause and say, I and finite. I see through a glass darkly. In fact, I would argue this is a great confession that every one of us ought utter before we come into worship, before we come into the presence of a holy God who chooses to speak through vessels such as us, who chooses to encounter us in a place such as this, in the condition that we are in. We would do well to say, Lord, May I come in humble. May I recognize that I am before a mystery. I don't understand how you're going to work through this little piece of bread and this juice later. I don't even think they're doing it right. 
I don't know how you're going to use these songs, especially when Colin is up there changing the tune to Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, turning it into some sort of ska ditty. <laughs> I, I liked it. I'm not critiquing Colin. But I saw some of your hearts. I felt your, your rage. <laughs> So how's the Lord supposed to work through this if, if it's dependent on us getting it right? We don't even have air conditioning. Still. It's a little better than the last time I was here, but the sweat's already beginning. And so, so we need to recognize that the Lord does this mysterious thing and chooses to do it through the lowest of vessels so that he would receive the greatest of glory. Right? And so here Paul is saying, Lest you be wise in your own sight. Think, thinking you figured some stuff out. Thinking you now understand predestination. Thinking you now can impress your friends with how it is that people are saved. Hold on a second, because I need to explain a mystery to you. And he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. Now, he's used this term mystery in other places, always in reference to the merging of the Gentiles and Jews into one people of God. Let me remind you, Gentiles are not a race. They are non-Jews of every tongue, tribe, and nation, right? So it is even a greater mystery that he could get the Gentiles together, much less wed them to a people who already thought they were the chosen most beloved of God. This should astonish us. And it should give us great hope as we wrestle with what in the world does it mean on various levels to be Presbyterian in the PCA with all that's going on? What does it mean to be an American evangelical, if you even use that term anymore? I don't, never did. What does it even, not the American part, that I can't get away from. I was born here. What does it even mean to be a Christian? We're even pushing away from all of these terms because of the bad behavior of others. So what hope could we have for God to reunite, for God to bring into the family through vessels such as us who can't even seem to get it together among ourselves? Well, this, this is our hope. This is a great mystery. Now listen to what he says. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's important. What does partial mean? Just some, not all. So he didn't, it's not like he castigated. There was always going to be a remnant. This is God's grace. So a partial hardening came upon Israel. Now, I know we struggle with that. That's part of the mystery. What does it mean to be hardened? That doesn't seem fair, God. Well, of the hard-hearted people I know, I, I was numbered among them, uh, there was no desire for God whatsoever, right? There was no like, hey, I'd love to hang out in, in a hot room and, and sing songs I don't understand or don't know the tune to uh, and, and listen to a monologue for I don't even know how long because he's been away a week and who knows how long he'll go. And we have communion. Let's pray for the workers in children's ministry. And so I, I get it, right? Like who, who would, would, would not look at that and wonder and have questions? If you don't have questions about God's hardening, I don't know that you're reading it, right? And God is not upset that you have questions, right? We see this with Habakkuk. We see this with the Psalms. We see this with many of God's people. It's okay to have questions. The, the issue is whether or not you have it in humility and are you willing 
to wait, stand your watch till he answers, or more importantly, recognize that his presence is more important than the answer to the question. So this partial hardening comes upon Israel until, and here's another mystery, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. All right, when is that? Is that the 144,000 that the Jehovah's Witnesses tried to take from us? Well, it turns out that number may not be exact or the point, right? It's a, a number of completion, a number of fullness, as we saw when we were in Revelation 7. Well, what number is it? When will this be? We don't know. Isn't that maddening? Isn't that a little bit maddening that he doesn't tell us? There's not like this great ticker somewhere on the internet, because that's where it'd have to be, uh, that, that shows us, all right, here, here's the final Gentile will come in. And, and here's the thing that saddens me. If there were a, a ticker and we knew it was down to the last saved person that would make all this right, suddenly we would become insanely evangelistic. Your calling, regardless of your understanding of the mystery, is to share the gospel. Our calling is to represent the glory of God, his righteous character in the world for the life of the world. Oh, and by the way, for our joy as well. It is great joy, actually, to be invited into the work of God. Oh, and by the way, it is not dependent on any one of us, which is what we'll see when we get to Romans 12 in January. Everybody has a different gift. Everybody plays a different part. It's not all on any one of us. We'll do it in various ways. And so the mystery continues. And in this way, through this partial hardening and the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, all Israel will be saved. All? As in every one of them? Because some of them died and kind of moved on to, to hell as we know hell is populated. Here's where we have to be careful in the sense, it's all in the sense of what God has determined. How many has he determined? How will we know when all of the Israelites, we have a sufficient number? We won't. This is part of the great mystery. We must continue until the Lord says, your work is done. We must continue until all things are made new if that were to happen in our lifetime. And praise be to God, if it would... I don't know. And so then he gives a, a series of quotations. It's kind of the best of. He slaps together from three different verses. And again, this kind of drives us crazy too, by the way, because no uh, seminary worth its salt would let a preacher do this. And yet, Paul does. And so what he does is he pulls from three different places, Isaiah 59, 20, Psalm 14, 7, and then Isaiah 27, 9. And he puts it together to make a point. Now we're going to look at two of those. I'm going to skip the one in the middle, uh, Psalm 14, but let me, let me tell you why he threw that in here. You may recognize that Psalm 14, there's a, a parallel psalm that's slightly different, uh, Psalm 53, that he quoted in Romans 3, 9 through 21. If you remember, what he says in Romans 3, 9 through 21 is, all have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned and are worthy of judgment. All. All of us. Nobody gets out of that one. Every single one of us needs Jesus. And if you go and you read Psalm 14, it's not a hopeless psalm. It's just hopeless if you're going to try to save yourself in your own effort. It is hopeful in the sense that those, these kinds of people of which we are numbered, who lack righteousness, the Lord will save. Now, if you would, turn in your Bible to Isaiah 59, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 21. 
and see that what Paul is essentially doing here is stitching together a promise that was uttered by the prophet, and it is, it is coming true. Listen at this. So the, this is part of the present circumstance and ongoing, unfortunately. Justice is turned back. What does that mean? Things aren't going well. That means the poor suffering, the widow, the orphan. Uh, that means that, that the, the rich are persecuting the poor. That's usually what these things mean. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Not good news. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Now, do you have any idea what this means? If truth is stumbling in the public square, this means that politically, socially, culturally, uh, economically, things are going bad for the least of these. They don't have the means of protecting themselves. In fact, truth is stumbled. They don't, they're not right judges. Is, the situation is insanely unjust. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Did you hear what that just said? If you were to try under this social circumstance to be a good person, to try to be a person of God, you'd become prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. So judgment precedes redemption. It serves that purpose. He has looked on the circumstance and the least of these, the weakest of these, those whom he loves at the margins, including his people, are being treated poorly and there is no one to step forward to save them. So he comes himself. When does he do this? He comes in Jesus. This actually makes the language of Mary's Magnificat quite interesting. And so... Uh, He goes on, and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So for those who repent in faith, there is a redeemer that will come from Zion. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring. For those who are wondering why we baptize infants, this is it in part. From this time forth and forevermore. In fact, this is part of what Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. Showing them that the coming of the Spirit has in fact been a fulfillment of this promise. That this promise will be for their children, them, their children, and their children's children. Not dependent on them. Uh, Not based on what they declare, but on what God has declared in his sovereign goodness. And so he has promised at some point he will save and redeem his people. 
And then if you would flip to Isaiah 27, we'll look at verses 6 through 9. Listen to what the word says. Therefore, by this, I'm sorry, 6 through 9. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Did you hear that? What was the original thing that Israel was supposed to do? Why were they granted the promised land and the promises and the covenant? This. They were, and what is the fruit that they were to fill the world with? Well, the glory of God. Remember in Revelation 22 that the trees will be for the healing of the nations. Israel was supposed to be for the healing of the nations. In fact, so that we don't put this just on Israel, you do understand that that now is true of us. That we, as God's people, are to function for the healing of the nations. We are to display the same glory. Now, we live in local context, and you got to start where you are, and you got to work within your spheres of influence, but this should be a perspective that we have. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant. It's why Paul calls the Abrahamic covenant the gospel in Galatians 3. He goes on. Uh, Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Now, what the, what the prophet is saying here is, did the people that had disobeyed, that were supposed to fill the world with fruit and had not done that as of yet, were being disobedient, they were not completely destroyed. This fits with what Paul says when it's a partial hardening. And then he carries them into exile instead of just destroying them in toto. This is God's grace. This is how God uses, in some measure, present judgment for eternal redemption. Listen how this says, Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing. And so part of what's being said here is all of the other forms of worship will be denied and destroyed. No other God to small g God to sit on the throne of their hearts. These things will be utterly put away at long last. So it is, this is what Paul has in view when he, when he calls to mind these verses that God has made these promises to his people. And as he goes on, Paul is going to show us that there are different perspectives. And this is very important. This is very important. And one of the reasons why we can't understand the mystery, because we cannot see it from all sides. When God does something, oftentimes we can only see it from our perspective, Right? Like if you are the one being sent into exile, you have a particular perspective. But if you are the one who benefits from the people who have been sent into exile, you have another. And so, listen to what he says. As regards the gospel or the good news of your redemption, your predestination in Christ, they are enemies for your sake. So as, you, as the Gentiles would look at the circumstance, they would see Israelites as their enemies at current. And that is for their sake. It won't remain that way, but that is their present perspective. But he's also saying, but you got to also understand there's something else at work here. The Lord works at multiple levels. His ways are not your ways, as Isaiah would tell us. He says, 
But as regards election, which is God's predestining love, uh, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That means that God is keeping his promises. They are saved not because of anything they do to earn it. Remember, God, Paul has been deconstructing this whole notion of works all throughout Romans. He has laid the axe as firmly to that root of that tree as can possibly be laid. And so he's saying it is only because God made promises to their forefathers that the present generation is being redeemed. Not because they are doing something special, not because they've suddenly become more obedient. Now again, that is a great mystery. That drives us crazy. Because many of us take that and go, well, then what does any of this matter? Why do anything at all? If God's going to save who he saves and do what he wants to do, what's the point? Well, the point is that we are invited into the work of the kingdom of God. That we get to see vistas and horizons that have eternal implications that will do something to our heads and our hearts and our souls that will last for eternity. We get to participate in redemption, which ought move us more than it does. But yet we get, we get petty because we don't have control of, over it and we can't understand it in full and we can't decide who's in and who's out. Be careful. That is an arrogant, arrogant position to take and it goes against the very mystery of what Paul's trying to get us to understand. Yes, I would choose personally to redeem my children much faster than God seems to be doing. I would choose and think myself more benevolent than him. I would choose to not let them suffer as they have suffered for the wrongs that they do, for their arrogances. And yet, I have personally tasted of the deliberate patience and kindness of the Lord and am, and am insanely grateful in a weird way, in a way I don't fully understand that he didn't save me sooner than he did. Because of the way in which I appreciate who God is that is, is grounded in how long he left me. I don't feel that he forsook me. There are some ways in which sometimes I entertain the idea, what if he had saved me sooner? Maybe I'd be a better person. Maybe I wouldn't have to bear these scars. Maybe, maybe, maybe I would be gentler, more funny, more joyful, more gregarious, more approachable. I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, but, but I am grateful that he worked in the way that he did, and I don't understand it in full. But yet I would choose something totally different for my children and quite possibly consign them to something worse. We see this generationally, right? Like one of the most uh, horrific ideologies that this world has ever known is my children will not go through what I went through. And that has spun up uh, a significant amount of damage culturally, societally, economically, politically, and in an enormous number of ways. And in fact, we have, we have sown the whirlwind in this. Now, that's a whole longer discussion. But because we have not allowed our children to endure some of the things they should endure, their immune systems aren't as good as they ought to be. Uh, their, their grit, their, their, a lot of weight. And this isn't true all the way across the board. By the way, I'm not accusing you all of this. So please reserve your email. Some of you are doing great work. You're letting your kids suffer. I appreciate it. Let them eat dirt. But uh, we do, at times, try to take from our children and control the circumstance in a way 
that, that is arrogant and, and ought not be so. And I'm not saying throw your kids in the deep end of the pool and call for them to swim. But you cannot keep suffering, which is one of God's great tools to shape his people. In fact, in union with Christ, we continue to suffer. It is one of the great ways in which we become disciples and are sanctified. Woe be unto us to take that from our children. Now, there's wisdom there. So, so let's recognize that the Lord does what he does in a way that is beyond the pale of our understanding. And he goes on to further unpack the mystery. He says, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, he's reminding him, remember who you were. It's not like you guys were neutral, were disobedient, and this is what caused God to move toward you, your disobedience. Think of how mysterious that is. Who among you moves toward people because of their disobedience? You are more drawn to them because they are more messed up they don't get it right. They don't remember your birthday. They send texts when they shouldn't. You ask for prayer. They give advice. You want to choke them. Like, I get it. Like, do you move toward those who frustrate you? Do you move toward those you disagree with? God does. And he goes on. To God, but, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The Lord is at work in this cycle. That is what's most important to us, not our understanding of and mastery of the cycle. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And this being consigned to disobedience means that we, and he's calling back in some measure to Romans 5, we are all in Adam. We are all born disobedient. This is one of the things in which we are unified. Romans 3, Psalm 14, Psalm 53. We are unified in our need for Jesus. And when it says the Lord consigned us to that, that means he let it be so. But he didn't leave it so. And he goes on, and now Paul can't help himself. He has been at it for quite some time theologically. He's been unpacking the gospel since chapter 1. He said some really interesting and hard things in 9 through 11, and this is his conclusion, and it ought be ours. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Not, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of us. Not what we know. Not what we do, but what he does, what he grants, what he gives. How unsearchable. Did you hear that? Do we believe that? Do we actually think there are some aspects of God that are actually genuinely unsearchable, or are we waiting for the next academic or popular level book to be written to explain it to us? I, listen, I can't throw stones. I've got like 4,000 books. But there are times where I sit in my office and I go, God, do I really need all of this to know and love you? You know what the answer is? No, you don't. But before you go having a giant bonfire book burning, <laughs> recognize I have blessed you with the voices of the saints who've come to the same conclusion and written it down for your benefit. Read on and take heart. But remember, to the reading of books, there is no end. And so, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This means that we, we can't possibly 
ever understand why and how he does what he does. It won't make sense to us because we're finite beings, because we're limited, and we don't have his eternal perspective. And yet, praise be to God, he is, he is steadfast in love. He is merciful and forgiving to, to generations beyond what you can number. His justice is also true. And it is limiting to sin itself. He says, no more after the third and the fourth generation. Not in destruction, but in redemption. Praise be to God that he is, he is forgiving of our sins. And he is persistent and faithful and patient in loving us, his people. It is his kindness that ought lead us to both repentance and worship. This is where Paul is. And now Paul breaks out in his best of from the book of Job. We will not go and look at these, but let me read them to you and maybe make a, 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 an argument for why he chooses Job here. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So who is it that fully understands God and then tells him how he ought to do what he does? Who? Well, we might need to look in the mirror here because sometimes I think we think it's us. And you may say, well, I don't do that active. Continue in that because it's going to hurt you. And then, this is really important too, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So who, who is it that's going to give something to God he doesn't already have, which is the argument he's going to make here in just a moment, doxologically? What is it we could give God that he, he would go, I mean, I never thought of that. I ain't never seen anything like that. That's pretty impressive. Not even your sin, as creative as we can be with sin, none of it takes him by surprise. And it is he who gives us the gift that cannot be repaid. It is he who grants us eternity as the single greatest gift that anyone can give you. Why it is, as the author of Hebrews would argue, would we wait for a greater superman than Jesus Christ? Why would we trample underfoot a blood that has been so freely given to redeem and make us righteous? What other crucifixion is going to be sufficient for your sin? Why would you want another gospel? You shouldn't. We shouldn't. And this should cause us to be able to worship in spirit and truth. And this is what Paul concludes with. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and amen. And so we have here a wonderful set of instruction about what theology ought to do for us. Anytime you sit down, if, if it doesn't cause you to praise, that doesn't mean that the, the truth of whatever it was is wrong or the truth of the word is wrong. This is just, it, it's helpful in the spirit to see something is off in my heart. But how often when you are reading scripture and you don't get anything out of it, you blame scripture and you cast it aside instead of your arrogance aside. How often have you prayed for something, I don't know, maybe twice, and God didn't immediately answer in the way that you prayed, and you cast prayer aside, you cast the throne aside, the access that you have, instead of casting away your petty demand. It's not that God doesn't care. He loves to hear from us as children. 
But he also knows better than we do. And so how often do we come to worship and we determine worship based on whether or not they remember to turn on those really cool lights that make it kind of homey in here. Or whether or not they sang the song in a certain key, a certain style, a certain frame, a certain way. Or whether or not Cameron was entertaining or short. We'll take one or the other. Is that what determines whether or not the Lord is good? Should we not ask of ourselves, God, were you glorified by me in here today? Were you glorified, Lord, with the orientation of my heart and my mind and my humility? Were you, Lord, blessed by how I loved those because I am loved around me? Those are much, much better questions. And I'm not trying to get off the hook so we can be lazy and do whatever we want up here. That's not it. But more that we would become those who worship in spirit and truth, those who are moved by the redemption of God, the mystery of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, to effusive praise. Now that looks different in each one of us, right? I'm not suggesting we got to start shouting in here. And by the way, there's a sermon series starting next week called Worship a Divine Invitation. This is providential. I didn't plan it this way. It's just the way the Lord worked it out. I had no idea this sermon would dovetail with that. But we're going to hear there's some practices and things that Scripture actually mandates that we don't do. And some of you are afraid to do because other people around you don't do it. That shouldn't be why we do what we do to praise and honor the Lord. But there is a regulative principle. We just want to make sure it's the biblical one and not the 16th century one to quote Randy Neighbors. Though I don't know he said it last week. He said it before. And so we want to be a people who are moved by the mystery. So here's my question to you. Does the mystery of God's redemptive will and workings lead you to worship with hope answers of those who are lost in your spheres of influence? And do you have any hope, any expectation for them at all? Again, there's a paradox here. We can't demand, we can't claim what we don't know, but yet we know that God, if he is putting a Christian in the life of a lost person under any circumstance, there is some way in which God is communicating with that person. We don't know to what end, but we ought to be ready vessels in that circumstance. We ought to be hopeful and expectant, not cynical, not begrudging, not angry. And so we want to be moved by the mystery. Hear how John Stott concludes Romans 9 through 11, and in particular, this last section Listen to his words, they're, they're, they're beautiful. He says, for 11 chapters, Paul has been giving his comprehensive account of the gospel. Step by step, he has shown how God has revealed his way of putting sinners right with himself. How Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. How we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection how the Christian life is lived, not under the law, but in the spirit, and how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel and of the Gentiles into his new community. Paul's horizons are vast. He takes time and eternity, history and eschatology, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, he stops out of breath. Analysis and argument must give way to adoration. What a gift 
that on a morning like this, when we would hear those words, that we are invited hospitably by the great host, Christ himself, to come to the Lord's table. This is where my analysis ought to give way to all of our adoration. Whether or not you agree with what I said is, is not as consequential as whether or not you know God as Savior. Whether or not you've been entertained or moved or any of those things is not near as consequential as whether or not you are in union with Christ and are able to be nourished by these elements from this table. What a gift that we get to be reminded of the fullness of Romans 1 through 11 and really, honestly, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. All of that is contained in this table. And you may say, well, how? That's the mystery. It's one of the great mysteries is that all of that truth can make its way into but a morsel of bread and but a, a small cup of juice. And that would do something to us as the spirit is at work in us as God has been present with us throughout. And Christ is also seated and is, is also looking on to this earthly worship as we seek to bring some heavenly glory. So if you are a believer, you are welcome to this table. Notice I didn't say if you're a good or obedient believer or a perfect believer or a believer who was at least good on the way to church this morning, none of that qualifies. It is whether or not you are dependent on Christ for your salvation alone. You recognize your sinfulness, your brokenness, your inability to earn or repay God for what he has done for you. You are welcome at this table. If you are not a believer, if Christ is not your savior, this is a meager and poor lunch. And I would encourage you to not participate because I don't want you to be confused thinking that it doesn't matter. No, it matters. If you are unforgiving towards someone, that puts you in the position of judge in a godlike fashion. You can't do that. In fact, you should also not partake of the table until you repent of that reality and deal with it. It can be a struggle. You can be struggling with it. If you're struggling with it, you're welcome at this table. If you are arrogantly decided as to who you think ought to go to hell, this is not your table. But for everybody else in Christ, you can take. And so let me give you a couple of instructions before I give uh, the, the words of institution. Um, if you only want uh, the, the communion MRE, that means the wafer and the juice together, that's all, it's also gluten-free, if you would only offer one hand to the person who has the juice. If you want both elements, uh, the small piece of bread in the, in the cup, give us both hands. That'll be helpful for us. To, and if you mess it up, we'll figure it out. I'll chase you down and we'll get it right, right? Uh, and so, I'll chase you down. Uh, that, that sounded more intense than it probably should be. Uh, I won't let you get far. How about that? For this side of the room, you're going to be coming to this table. <clears throat> you will exit to the aisle, receive, and return on the outside. This side of the room, you'll start in the back. You'll exit to the outside, take, and return on the aisle side. Uh, and we will just move through as we do that. But more important than those instructions, let me give you these. Remember what Christ said on the night where he was, was the cross was in view. He was about to be sorely mistreated, horribly mistreated for his friends. And he wanted them to have something that was going to carry them through. So think about this for a second. How... how incredible that historical event was for those who were there. In fact, it was so decentering to them, they ran. They thought they were dead. They hid in the upper room, if you remember, right? It wasn't pretty. 
But he wanted them to have something that when the smoke cleared, that they would remember what he had done for them, and that would be so in an ongoing fashion that's been passed down to us, the historic church. So this, this helps us with our anxiety and our fear and our struggle with the mystery and our arrogance. What a great gift it is. He took that bread and he said, this, this is my body and it is given for you. And in saying that, he meant that he was going to take on the fullness of our shame, guilt, anxiety, arrogance, everything that was offensive to the Lord our God. And he would satisfy the wrath due every one of those things so that we could be out from under the weight of that crushing truth. And then as the meal went on, he reached over and he took the cup and he raised it up and he said, this, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's what he was saying is you will now have a heart of flesh, as Colin quoted earlier. You will now be able to be pleasing to the Lord and serve him as a redemptive instrument in a way that you never could before. So as you receive the bread and the juice, if you would, hold it so we can take all together as family, but meditate on these wonderful and glorious mysteries, these truths, and may it May it warm our hearts. May it cause us to, as we are concluding, continue to worship a God who loves us so much, who came for us just as he promised that he would, because there was no other Savior coming or available. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things. Thank you for your gospel truth. Thank you for how you love us. You pursue us in Christ. Thank you that it is mysterious. I don't understand why you do it one way in one person's life and another way in another person's life. I, I can't do the math. And I, I thank you, Lord, that we don't get to write other people's stories, but we get to benefit from them. I thank you that you continue to grow the family, but it's those who are invited into the work as the means by which those things will come to pass. Would you use our gifts as Christ Community Church to see your family get bigger? Would you use this table this day to nourish us in that reality? In Christ's name, amen.